Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Lowdown. Today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Raymond Verhein, owner of Football Coach Evolution. Raymond, welcome to the show. Thanks for your invitation. Raymond, as we begin with every guest that comes on the podcast, we're going to start here. What was your earliest football memory? Uh, me playing on the street with my friends. Uh, so that's my personal uh, football memory. And um, um, on, on television, it's, uh, it's uh, watching Ajax play uh, uh, at the end of, uh, of the 70s. Um, because I'm born and raised in Amsterdam. So then you grow up with Ajax and, and, and Johan Cruyff. So, uh, yeah, I would say that those are my earliest memories. Yeah. And where did the coaching piece come into play for yourself? Well, um, uh, when I was, uh, let's say, 16, 17, I was, uh, I was playing for the Dutch uh, under-17 uh, national team. Uh, and my coach was uh, Bert van Lingen. Who, uh, who you might know is uh, the founder of coach education in, in the Netherlands and, uh, and also wrote uh, the coaching of youth football uh, book. Um, so he was my coach in those days. And, um, but then I had to, uh, I had to stop uh, playing because of a chronic hip injury. Uh, so at that moment, yeah, basically as a teenager, you think that your whole world falls apart uh, because, yeah, until that moment, you think that you are on your way to become a professional player. Uh, but unfortunately not. Um, but then thankfully, um, I was able to uh, turn that disadvantage into an advantage. Um, and like many others, uh, it also gives you the opportunity to, uh, to start your coach education at a relatively young age. Uh, so uh, by the time I was 18, I started and um, I think I was 23, four or something uh, when I had uh, my coaching uh, badges. Um, yeah, and then, and then my coaching started uh, from uh, my mid-20s. And do you think it's, of course, you were fortunate enough to come across such a wonderful mentor at that age, Raymond, 16, 17. Do you think that's a necessary requirement to get into the game of football? Or perhaps, in fact, better question, do you think you'd be in a position you were today if it wasn't for meeting your mentor at that time? Well, obviously, I, I cannot tell uh, because uh, you, you could also argue that you might have been in a better place than, uh, than, than today. So uh, it, it's all hypothetical. But what I can say is that um, if you reflect uh, on anyone's pathway, and so if I reflect on my pathway, then um, obviously uh, a, lot of, a lot of things are based on coincidences and, and luck. Uh, because um, on the one hand, when I was a youth player, I was able to meet Bert van Lingen. But then I, when I was 18, I also went to the University of Amsterdam. And uh, my, uh, one of my professors was uh, the philosopher Jan Tambour. Um, so when I was a, a student at the age of 18, I was uh, educated about the action theory which was later translated into football theory. Um, and then later I found out that uh, Bert van Lingen, one mentor, and Tambour, my professor at the university, they actually knew each other. So they had also influenced each other. Um, 
So by the time I, I started working at the Dutch FA, the three of us came together um, and, um, and then we started to develop football theory, uh, football periodization, uh, the, the youth football uh, methodology. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's a lot of coincidence and, and luck along the way. Absolutely amazing to hear of that. And having listened to previous podcasts with yourself on board before, Raymond, I never knew that point. But they say, you know, if you want better answers, to ask better questions. And certainly I think that's what you guys are at least, at the very least, trying to bring that conversation on with FC Evolution. For anyone who doesn't know what you guys do and what you're about, could you please elaborate? Yeah, in, in, a, in a nutshell, I would say that um, what we are trying to do is uh, develop uh, coaching tools that are uh, based on the characteristics of the game and not based on uh, scientific areas of, of expertise. So, unfortunately, uh, what you see already for decades is that... Um, non-contextual knowledge is projected from outside football onto the football world. But together with the non-contextual knowledge comes the non-contextual jargon. So what you see is a pollution of football language and a pollution of, uh, of football knowledge. And you see a lot of non-contextual terminology and a lot of non-contextual knowledge uh, being applied in the football world. Um, so people try to solve football problems in a non-contextual way with non-contextual solutions. Uh, I always say when I explain that to my six-year-old daughter, she probably starts to laugh. Um, because even she understands that something is going wrong along the way. Um, so the consequence of all this pollution is that a lot of people without a deep understanding of football, they can join the discussion and they can even occupy positions in the football world despite their lack of football knowledge. Why? Because of the pollution in the football world, um, talking about football in non, with non-contextual terms is allowed. But that means that you can talk without saying anything. If you say he's not sharp or he's not focused or he is not fit or poor technique or these are all general non-contextual terms, pretending that you talk about football, but in reality, you still have not said what went wrong on the pitch, why it went wrong on the pitch. So as a result, people without football knowledge can join and therefore frustrate the conversation about football. And they occupy positions in football because they talk a good game. They are smooth talkers. They present themselves really well. Uh, they have nice PowerPoints with a lot of jargon, etc. But the long-term consequence is that the evolution of football will slow down. Because you can only solve football problems with football solutions and not with non-contextual solutions. 
Yeah, and just to give you uh, a very simple example, in the football world, you have a lot of people who train running and sprinting, and they they train uh, the fitness of players. But if you analyze football, then running and sprinting is only a symptom of football. It is only the result of football, but it's not football itself. Because if you analyze a football action, uh, passing, pressing, uh, dribbling, shooting, whatever, first, a player is communicating with his environment to exchange information. And then based on that information, the player makes a decision. And then he executes that decision. And then executing that decision could be by running or sprinting or, or something else. So running and sprinting is the outcome, the result of communicating, deciding, and executing the decision. So people who are measuring running and sprinting, they are measuring a symptom of football. And then these so-called experts, so they, the, these non-contextual experts, are then going to take running and sprinting as a starting point for the next training. Or they say to a player, hey, you uh, did not uh, run enough or did not sprint enough during this training session. So afterwards, you have to do extra running or sprinting. So imagine that I'm a very good football player and I, I communicate really well with my environment. So I have less miscommunication. I lose the ball less. Or I have very good game insight, so I make very good decisions. My good communicating and my good deciding has a consequence for my executing of decisions. In other words, I will run and sprint less. And then these non-contextual experts about running and sprinting, they are telling me afterwards that I have to run or sprint extra to hit certain, certain targets. So now, because I'm a very good football player who communicates really well and makes very good decisions, I have to do extra running afterwards. Well, I hope you understand that that is the world upside down. Eh? Because I'm a very good football player. And one of the symptoms of a very good football player is that you have to run and sprint less. So these non-contextual experts are then are developing training programs to run and sprint extra. So they are developing training programs to train a symptom, but you cannot train a symptom because the symptom is a consequence of something else. So if I'm a very good football player and you want me to run or sprint more for whatever reason, you have to manipulate football. So you have to change the pit size, longer, shorter, wider, smaller. Uh, you have to change the number of players. So four against four, or you have to make eight against eight, eight against nine or whatever. Or you have to coach better as, as, as a coach eh? because less running and sprinting might also be the consequence of poor coaching. So if you design better training uh, exercises, or if the quality of your coaching is better, it will be more overload on the communication and the decision-making of players. And then as a result, they will have to run and sprint more. 
But now you make a player run and sprint more as a consequence of overloading football rather than as an objective in itself. Now, and this is just one of the many examples that you can give that because you see in football more and more people, non-contextual people who are non-contextual experts, but they don't understand football, that you see that more and more people are trying to influence the effect rather than the cause. And like I said, if I explain that to my six-year-old daughter, she probably laughs at me. But unfortunately, this is what's going on at the moment in the biggest sport of the world. And the only way that you can solve that, and now I come back after creating some context, I go back to your question. The only way that you can solve that is to explain to people that they should take the sport as a starting point and the characteristics of the sport as a starting point. And then you can use knowledge to improve the characteristics of the sport. And in a nutshell, that is what we are doing with, uh, with Football Coach Evolution. Educate people in a universal football action language so that non-contextual language is not allowed anymore, not uh, possible anymore. So now you have to say what you see, which means that people who don't have a deep understanding of football are probably going to do this. You see? Because if you have to say what you see in action language, in verbs, in behavior, but you don't understand football, you are not going to join the conversation because then you will be exposed. So now only the people with an, an understanding of football will join the conversation. So that means that the conversation will not be frustrated that much and slow down. And you will get people in important positions in the football world with uh, an understanding of football because smooth talkers or people with a, good, with a big network but without understanding football, will also not get away with talking without saying anything anymore because they also have to say what they see. Um, yeah, so that is, that is what we do. Universal football language, say what you see. And then based on that, we are developing uh, football knowledge uh, rather than uh, projecting non-contextual knowledge from outside onto the football world really insightful and thorough and I suppose too there's a difference between having the knowledge and being able to apply it you know to, to the coach that has a hammer everything in the world looks like a nail yeah yeah developing knowledge is only the starting point um, because then uh, the, the second phase is that you must develop the ability to apply it yeah, because uh, coaching football is first of all uh, describing problems uh, because as a coach you want to solve problems uh, and, and then people sometimes say I, I prefer the word challenge whatever uh, if you if you want to develop uh, the playing style uh, of your team it means that your your team at this moment is not able to do something and you want them to be able to do it in one two or three months uh, so that is the problem that you uh, that you want to solve but if you want to solve problems, 
yeah, first you have to describe the problem. Then you have to explain the problem. And then you can solve the problem. And first you have to describe it. And that is the effect. That is what you see. So describing the problem means that you describe what you see. So that is the effect. It's not the cause. It is the effect. It is the outcome. It is what you see. And that is why universal football action language is so important. Because with universal football action language, describing the problem is going to be much more to the point. If you allow non-contextual jargon, yeah, then describing the problem is going to be vague. The better you describe a problem in action language, the bigger the chance that you can explain the problem. Uh, that is the cause. Uh, explaining the problem is, okay, what is the cause? This is the effect that you described. What is the cause? And the moment you understand cause and effect by describing the effect and explaining the cause, the moment you understand cause and effect, you have a bigger chance of solving the problem because you have an incompetent effect because of this cause. Now you want a competent effect, so a competent pass or a competent buildup. So then you have to change the cause. Yeah, but that is something you only understand once if you understand cause, incompetent football action, effect. And then you want a competent football action, but then you have to change the cause. Yeah, so the better you understand cause and effect, the bigger the chance that the solution will pop up a different cause. And explaining problems and then coming up with solutions yeah, that depends on your football knowledge yeah are you going to explain are you going to explain a problem based on non-contextual brain science or non-contextual um, uh, technique science or whatever or are you going to explain football problems based on football knowledge. That's a huge difference because um, it, the, the latter will increase the chance that the solution also pops up. So it all starts with knowledge. Yeah? The more knowledge you have, the bigger the chance that you understand the world around you in terms of cause and effect. And then the bigger the chance that you can come up with uh, a better solution. And then you have to apply that solution. And then applying the solution means that you have to anticipate external factors. Yeah, because 10 coaches are working in 10 different environments. Yeah. So they are going to apply the same solution in 10 different ways because they all have to anticipate uh, different external factors. And external factors are, for example, what players are you working with? Adults, children, female, male, uh, amateur, professional, uh, or which culture, which continent, uh, how often do they train? Do you have a whole pitch available or half a pitch available to train? All these external factors determine how those 10 coaches are gonna apply the same solution. But again, you want to do that in an as objective as possible way, yeah? which again requires knowledge. So knowledge 
is the foundation for coaching football. First of all, to understand the world around you. And secondly, to apply that knowledge in, in the best possible way. Um, so that is the other thing that we are um, working on with football coach education in our coaching courses. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, we are working in a world where the majority of people think that experience is of a higher order than knowledge. For me, listening to you speak, the application to, you know, that's a messy bit too as well, Raymond. That's a science in of itself. You said something on a pod before that always struck a chord with me. And that was, you speak a lot about the differences between successful and unquote, unquote, unsuccessful coaches, whatever our measure of success is, arbitrary it seems. But you said for you, the difference was whether they're top-down control or top-down guidance. Is that something which you could please elaborate upon? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, if children play street football, so they play football on the street, there is no guidance at all. Eh? So that is just when children play football on the street, it is a purely bottom-up process without any uh, guidance at all. If you would ask a football coach, how would children develop uh, quicker and better? By playing on the street, so a purely bottom-up process, or with your football training. So it is still a bottom-up process, but now with top-down guidance. Well, all of them will say, yeah, football training. Why? Because when you play on the street, you will only get past the lamppost accidentally. You try, you fail. You try, you fail. You try something else, you fail. You try, A, hey, you succeed. Ah, so apparently this is how you get past the lamppost. But that is trial and error. So that is accidental. But that's a very slow process. Yeah, because, yeah, you never know when, the, uh, when, when you manage to get past the lamppost accidentally. In football training, if you have a knowledgeable coach who knows how to get past the lamppost, or in this case, past an opponent, for example, this coach can top-down guide the process to make the player get past the lamppost or the opponent uh, quicker. So it's less trial and error. So the development of the player is quicker because it's not trial and error anymore. It's more purposeful. There's only one thing. If the coach tells the player how to get past an opponent, that is what you call top-down control. So then the, the coach tells the player how to get past the opponent. But that is only true in that situation. Because in a slightly different situation, yeah, a different way of getting past the opponent is required with a different position, with a different moment, with a different direction and a different speed. So then the player starts looking at the coach again, like, uh, oh, how should I get past uh, the opponent this time? You see? So you uh, treat your players like robots, which means that you do not de develop independent decision makers. Yeah, that is why a lot of people are always complaining about a lack of creative players in countries, which means a lack of good decision makers, which is the consequence 
of coaches top-down controlling their players. So they are shouting from the sideline how to do things. So they treat their players like robots. Instead of top-down control, you have top-down guidance, which means that you uh, leave the responsibility still with the player. So the player is still the decision-maker. Top-down guidance means that you already know the answer as a coach, but you are not telling the answer. You are asking questions to make the player understand the answer him or herself. So now the player keeps ownership of the process. So the player is still the decision maker, but you are basically transferring your understanding to the brain of the player by asking questions. And with your questions, you provoke understanding in the brain of the player. And that's what you call reference coaching. So you are coaching by asking questions and you are transferring your reference, your understanding to the brain of somebody else. Um, and that's what you call top-down guidance. So top-down control is telling players how to do things. Top-down guidance is asking questions to make players understand how to do things. So now the players take ownership and street football is no guidance at all. So trial and error, purposeless. One of the best books in recent years I've had the fortune of reading was Robert Greene's Mastery. Don't know if you're familiar with it, Raymond. Yeah. You are. He has one quote in the book, which I'll never forget, where he says competence comes before comprehension in that our ability to do task would always, you know, precede our ability to comprehend or proceed what we're doing in that task. And for me, coaches that have that top-down guidance, they're almost coaches with a sixth sense. They have that instinct. They accept humans for what they are, be it like fault-making machines. They're not going to have that control over them the whole time. And you've worked with quite a few good coaches in your time, one of which I want to pick up upon, Goose Hiddink, where you remarked before, he coached with situations. He didn't coach with words. No. Yeah, what... Um... I just wanted, and if possible, could you give an insight into that statement from yourself that he coached with situations, not words, in that perhaps, I mean, was Goose Hiddink just trying to create that playground-like environment for his players? Yeah, basically, uh, what he did was um, he saw the problem, um, he did not tell the, pro the he did not tell the players uh, how to solve it, so no top-down control. He did not ask questions to make players reflect on the situation. Um, so reference coaching, uh, the top-down guidance that we discussed. No, he did something else first: situation coaching. So basically, what he did was he created the situation to provoke the problem. So now everybody experiences incompetence. He provokes the desire for change. And then he's gonna do reference coaching by downloading and transferring the solution to the brain of players. And he 
um, basically apply change management in the best possible way. Because the mistake that a lot of people make in change management is that they see the problem, but the people on the working floor don't see the problem yet. So they think everything is fine. And then the manager or the boss starts to implement change. But the change has no meaning for the people on the working floor because they think everything is fine. So then the people on the working floor thinks, oh, the boss wants us to go to the left. Well, I don't know why, but okay, let's go to the left. Oh, now he wants us to go to the right. Okay, let's go to the right. I still don't know why, but okay, he's the boss. And then when things go wrong, yeah, everybody's looking at the boss like, hey, you wanted to go to the right, not, not us. And that is why change management often goes wrong. What Hiddink did, he helped nature a little bit. So instead of changing immediately, he first created a situation. So he helped nature, he provoked the problem. Everybody saw, experienced the problem. Nobody wants to be incompetent. So everybody developed the desire for change. It doesn't matter what, as long as we are competent again. And then he implemented his, um, his solution. But now his solution was not the opinion of the boss. It was the solution for the incompetent feeling of the people on the working floor. That's, I mean, you are doing the same thing, but it is perceived uh, in a 180 degrees different uh, way by the people on the working floor. And these coaching and teaching problems where I'm speaking about Raymond, I mean, are they, are they just limited to football from your experience or are they indicative of wider society? Uh, you, you can use this. So situation coaching to provoke the problem, to make people experience the problem. And then reference coaching. So then you start asking questions about what people have just experienced. So you make them reflect on the incompetent experience. And then they understand uh, what competence means. Eh? They understand the solution. Uh, this is something that you can uh, use in all uh, parts of life. Uh, one, for example, is uh, uh, raising teenage children who think they know everything better. And so I've experienced Raymond. Now, but the thing is, uh, everybody, every parent who has or has had uh, teenage children who are on their way to become independent, so they are looking for independence, which is good. Um, so they start to, they have the desire to do things more and more their, their own way. But then as a parent, you sometimes already know that, oh, if you are going to do it this way, it's not going to work because you have been there yourself as a teenager uh, 20, 30 years ago. But if you in advance say to your teenage child, hey, uh, that's not going to work for this and this and this reason, it has no meaning. It has no meaning for the child because the child has a, a bare brain in that area. Uh, because the child doesn't have the thinking tools to understand what you mean. And the child also has not experienced it yet. The child doesn't have that life experience yet. So you are talking to a bare brain, in, at least in that context. So that is why children 
sometimes have to make mistakes first before they understand. Because once your teenage child uh, or, or any child, but in particular teenage, because they, they really want to do it their way, then after the child has made a mistake and then you sit down with your child and you do reference coaching, yeah, then it's easy. Because then they understand that, uh, that their way was probably not the best way. Uh, because they cannot deny the failure. So uh, you, you have a clear starting point for, for the conversation. Um, and then as a, as, a, as a parent, you have to make sure that uh, when you guide your child in, during failure, that the failure is not too big and that the damage is not too big, of course. Um, so also when you are raising children, methodology might be useful. Yeah? Gradual, gradual overload instead of uh, all or nothing. And we're speaking about embracing failure there, but I'm thinking about people listening to this podcast and thinking about perhaps coaches that are already successful in their own right. Raymond, is that something you encounter now, a resistance to change? I mean, perhaps is there enough appetite for the coaches who are already succeeding, who are already winning every weekend for change and to kind of embrace what you're trying to teach? Well, first of all, I think it's important to mention that um, we, uh, our intention uh, with Football Coach Evolution is not to change the football world. Um, uh, the only thing we try to do is uh, create a platform uh, for coaches who want to uh, develop themselves uh, but more in an objective way rather than a subjective way uh, based on the flavor of the month or smooth talking or, uh, oh, uh, let's copy the champion yeah, because every time there's a different champion. So every time you have to copy somebody else. Uh, so you basically you are chasing your own tail. Um, and if you copy somebody, you are always behind uh, because the one you are copying is, is already, has already progressed further. Um, so we are not changing the world. We are creating a platform for people who want to develop themselves as a coach in a more objective way based on knowledge, yeah, reliable information, rather than uh, based on opinions and, and past experiences. In other words, uh, unreliable information. And then everybody's welcome. Because uh, when I do, uh, for example, the five-day course uh, in Madrid or London uh, uh, last June, uh, everybody is welcome. I, I never ask uh, where somebody's working. The only thing that matters is whether somebody um, is a good role model, so practice what he preaches. So he behaves himself or herself like he wants his players to behave. And secondly, that somebody is uh, an open thinker. Um, so somebody who is always willing to falsify his own thinking in an attempt to progress. Yeah? These characteristics are important. And as a result, uh, we have people uh, in our course who are working in the English Premier League. And we have people in the room who are coaching the team of their eight-year-old daughter. Uh, and it's fine because you know what? These two people at the level of the what are coaching exactly the same sport. The, their difference is at the level of the how. 
the moment they have to apply solutions, they have to anticipate external factors, then the Premier League and your the team of your eight-year-old daughter is different. But the, the moment you are only talking about the sport and knowledge, it doesn't matter where uh, you work. Um, so I, I am... I'm never interested in, in, in whether people are working at a high level or not. I am open to everybody and I'm sharing my knowledge with everybody. If somebody behaves in a, as a role model and when somebody is really willing to develop his thinking. Um, so that's what we did and, and, and do in, in our courses. As a result, and that is obviously uh, uh, why you are asking this question. As a result, you have plenty of people who think they are doing fine and they are winning games or have won games and they don't want to develop further. And that's also fine. Yeah, as long as they stay out of my classroom. And out of curiosity, I mean, we've spoken a lot about cause and effect on this podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, obviously, we get a lot of coaches availing of the great work that you put on for them. But what about boardroom level, Raymond? Is there much of an uptake there? Yeah, it's a, that's a very good question because uh, sometimes in a course, um, I say to these coaches, listen, I'm basically talking to the wrong people yeah, because uh, everything I have explained also in this, uh, in this podcast is something I should explain to the decision makers. Yes. Um, if you are uh, in charge of a football club, yeah, and you are in charge of the uh, of, of developing the culture in your club, and appointing staff members and building a youth academy, etc. Um, so basically, you are hiring coaches. You should understand what. Coaching means, yeah, because if you do not understand what coaching football means, you also don't know what coaching football really well, how that looks. So if you don't know what coaching football really well or coaching football very poorly, if you don't know the difference between the two, then it's impossible that you are going to hire a coach. But that is what's happening. Decision makers who don't have a clue about coaching football are hiring people who are supposed to coach football. Um, yeah, and, and, and then everything that happens next is just a snowball effect. It's, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, because people who don't know what coaching football is will hire people who are not very good coaches and then everything else is a logical consequence. Um, and, and what is also a beautiful example, of course, that I also describe in, in my books, um, is this whole performance uh, issue in the football world these days. Uh, you have uh, performance departments, uh, you have heads of performance, you have performance coaches, yes? And all these people are not coaching performance. It's really funny, right? So. A team that is performing really well is a team that is winning, right? That is a team that is attacking really well, so they're scoring goals. 
Uh, it's a team that is defending really well, so they are preventing the opponent from scoring. It's a team that is transitioning really well from one to the other. It's players who are passing, pressing, shooting really well. That is performance. Uh, performance is winning, attacking, defending, transitioning, passing, pressing, dribbling, etc. That is performance in football. Correct? Correct. Yeah. Who is the head of that performance? What would you say? Who is ultimately responsible for managing that process? Before you said that, I was going to say the player, but who's ultimately responsible for managing the process? You'd have to see, say, the first team coach or the manager, whatever you'd like to call them. Yeah? The head coach. Yeah. So the head coach, the head coach is the head of performance. Yeah, if the team doesn't perform well, he is responsible. He is the head responsible. And then the people who are called performance department are responsible for recovery strategies, nutrition, injury reduction, monitoring, uh, whatever. But these are not areas of improving attacking these are areas in in terms of preconditions they are preconditions to play football so the head of performance is the head of preconditions and the performance department is the preconditions department and you are not a performance coach you are a precondition coach which obviously sounds less sexy. So it will probably reduce your salary. If you are the head of preconditions, you will probably get a lower salary than when you are the head of performance. You understand the point, right? I do, yeah. So, um, because also in business, you see that people are make, creating more and more fancy job titles. Um, and you see the same in football. Um, so... It speaks for itself that in the football world, the biggest sport of the world, the head of performance, the head coach, allows the head of precondition to hijack his job title. You see? So the head of performance, the head coach, allows the head of preconditions to hijack the job title Head of performance. Well, there's only one explanation for this. Either people don't care or people have a lack of knowledge. In other words, they cannot think themselves of what I have just explained. So they have a lack of knowledge. So they think they are doing the right thing because they cannot come up with the explanation that I just gave themselves. And then the people who are responsible for preconditions, they are claiming the job title with performance, taking advantage of a lack of knowledge with football coaches and decision makers. And I can give you 20 other examples, this is, but this is, the, this is the most obvious one, that somebody is head of performance, but he is not responsible for performance. Now, even better, he is not even coaching performance. 
Because coaching performance means coaching, attacking, defending, transitioning. But the head of performance is not coaching, attacking, defending, uh, uh, transitioning. So head of performance is not only wrong because this guy is not the head. It's also wrong because he's not even coaching performance. So he has nothing to do with performance. So why do you claim performance in your job title? Yeah, you are preconditions. No. And um, like I said, uh, because of a lack of knowledge in the football world, these things happen because in the football world, most people think that everything is an opinion. Yes. But I have news for these people. Not everything is an opinion because several of the things that I have explained in this podcast are facts based on logical reasoning. Yeah, because if you listen this podcast again, just check how often I shared my opinion and how often did I start my reasoning with an objective fact. And then I said, okay, if this is true, then this is true. But then if this is true, this is true. But if this is true, then this is true. And that's what you call deductive thinking, yeah? logical reasoning. But yeah, most people think that everything is an opinion and that everything is subjective. And as a result, you create an environment where everybody is allowed to say whatever he wants without taking responsibility. Everybody is uh, able to do whatever he wants without being held responsible or accountable. Uh, yeah, and then the only only... The only way to survive is winning games <laughs> or you, blame the referee. You know what, Raymond, when you're speaking about preconditions too, it's nearly a, as if we're mistaking the map for the territory. And when you see so many people trying to control so much, these measures, excess data, they become targets. And it's almost as if there's a prostitution of the game and, you know, we're losing sight of what's most important. And... You know, I don't, I don't, I don't know, but I mean, you're someone who successfully navigated change and you've adapted throughout your career to that. I mean, where do you see the game evolving? Where do you see this conversation going if we're to pick this podcast up in 10 years time, let's say? Um, well, that is very uh, simple to answer. Uh, things will develop further the way they are developing today. Um you will have a certain group of people who want to approach uh, coaching football in an objective way. And you have a majority of people, because that group will always be bigger, who will forever approach the game subjectively. And the, the number one and I have mentioned that already a few times in this conversation, the number one reason why this will forever be the case is that people think that experience is of a higher order than knowledge. Yeah, There are many people in the football world who say that football coach is an experience profession. And you get better at it when you get older when you have more experience. You know where that is also true? When children play football on the street. Yeah? 
the older they get, the more they have played on the street, the more trial and error they have done, the more often they accidentally get past the lamppost. Do you understand the point? So basically, people who say that coaching football is an experienced profession, you know what these people are saying without knowing it? That coaches should develop the way children develop when they are playing football on the street. You see? That's not what they mean, or they are not aware of it, but that's what they say. Because street football is also an experienced profession. Because you play street football without top-down guidance, so you experiment, and once in a while you succeed, and then you think, oh, I have to remember this. You see? So it's an experienced profession. So if you ask these coaches, how does a player develop better by playing street football or in your football training? They will all say my football training. But when they talk about their own development, they say it's an experienced profession. So basically they say, no, but coaches develop best by playing, metaphorically speaking, street football. Yeah, trial and error. I get better when I get older. No. Players get better with top-down guidance by the coach and coaches get better because of the top-down guidance by the coach educator. There's only one thing. The top-down guidance with the player is only going to work with a competent coach and the top-down guidance with the coach is only going to work with a competent coach educator. Yeah, And unfortunately, we don't have that many competent coach educators. In other words, coach educators who can explain everything they say, you see? Um, so the thing is that the, the people who say that football coach is an experienced profession, yeah, without knowing it, make the thinking mistake that they say coaches develop best like children playing on the street. Okay, now that is one thing. And hopefully I have explained it clear enough uh, with my street football metaphor. But then the second thing, if you would ask these people, what do you mean with experience? Yes. Then things get even more confusing because experience, and this is more easy to understand for native English speakers, but experience means collecting sensory data, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling. Yes. You are a native speaker, a native English speaker. So experience, if you experience something, you are collecting sensory data, right? Right. And that, that is the experience. So you taste food. Oh, and then you have this fantastic experience. Yeah, It tastes really well. And you think, oh, I, I want more of this. Or you drink wine or whatever. Somebody goes to a museum or a fantastic football game or etc. So you collect sensory data. Yeah, and it, it triggers, it triggers uh, 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 a feeling inside you. So that's the experience. But now... Let's go one step further. The moment you collect the sensory data, 
you have a first impression, right? That first impression, is that still the experience? Is that still the sensory data? Or is that your first impression? In other words, is that already theory? Have you already theorized, although in a very subjective way, but have you already theorized the sensory data? What would you say? The latter. Yeah. If I meet you for the first time, yeah, I collect sensory data. I, based on that sensory data, based on me experiencing you, I have a first impression. But that first impression is already theory. It's not practice anymore. My first impression is my initial theory about you. Yes. But yeah, it is often an unreliable theory because I have collected sensory data. I have experienced you. But it, it is my subjective interpretation of you because maybe somebody else has a different uh, first impression of you. Yeah, because I interpret the sensory data based on my filters, you see? Okay, so now I have a subjective first impression of the sensory data. That is not the experience anymore, that is theory, but it is low quality theory. It's like a low resolution picture. What should I now do with that first impression? I should objectify that first impression, right? I should, ob I have an initial subjective first impression of you, and then I should objectify it. I should create a higher resolution picture, eh, metaphorically speaking. In other words, I should falsify, I should try to falsify my first impression. And that's how you can objectify something. You have a first impression, yeah? And instead of thinking that that is the truth, no, you're gonna try to falsify your first impression. So the next time I meet you, I'm gonna try to falsify my first impression. But you know what most people do? Their first impression of you are now the glasses through which they're gonna look at you the second time. And now they're gonna look for confirmation of their first impression, right? Right. Yeah. People are going to, they are going to look for confirmation of the first impression instead of trying to falsify the first impression. So if I use my first impression as the glasses to which I'm going to look at you the second time, you know what I'm basically doing? I am pretending that my first impression of you is the truth. So I have downloaded my first impression the low resolution picture, I have downloaded that in my brain as if it is the truth. Instead of trying to falsify my first impression to make it more objective. So far, so good? So far, so good. Okay. And now, now let's go to the football world. I am a player, yes? And I have played 100 games with the national team. And I have played 500 games in the Premier League. So I have a lot of experience, right? But what does that mean? Well, it means 
that I have had a lot of first impressions of football situations, coaches, training sessions. I have a lot of subjective first impressions. But now the question is, what did I do with those first impressions? Did I objectify them? Or did I download them in my brain as if it is the truth? So in other words, um, in this season, we won the title and the coach applied this and this and this. So this and this and this is really good. So now I, I link, I have a positive association with this, this and this. But in this season, we relegated and the coach was doing that, that and that. So now that, that and that, oh, that's not good. So now I have a negative subjective association with that, that and that, you see? So I have a lot of associations, subjective associations based on winning and losing. Or maybe I have a positive association with a certain exercise because I like the coach. Or I have a negative association with something because I dislike the coach. So the player is not objectifying uh, first impressions. No, the player has a lot of experiences, a lot of first impressions. Those first impressions are based on positive and negative subjective associations. And now the player is downloading those low resolution pictures as if it is the truth. Do you understand that these players are polluting their brain? They are accumulating illusions. Look, this player, his coach is applying tactical principles and they win the title. This player, his coach is applying tactical principles and they get relegated. This player now stores a positive association in his brain with tactical principles. This player develops a negative association with tactical principles in his brain, right? And then 10 years later, these two players become coaches. What do you think this coach is gonna apply? Tactical principles, because I wanna win the title again. What do you think this coach is not gonna apply? Tactical principles, because I don't wanna get relegated again. Did I visualize pollution well enough? So all these former players, with all that experience, in other words, all these first impressions, all these subjective interpretations of sensory data based on winning and losing or liking or disliking the coach, and they did not objectify them. Do you see how they have polluted their brain? Yeah, and you're not even beginning. To we work in a world where these people are in a higher regard than people without all that brain pollution, but with a lot of reliable objective knowledge. Do you see that in an objective way, I have explained that this is, this is the world upside down. It should be like this, objective knowledge, subjective experience, you see? But yeah, like I said, this is never ever gonna change. So to go back to your question, in 10 years time, 
things will still be like this. Maybe the group of coaches that want to um, approach the game more objectively based on reliable information will grow uh, because it has also grown in the last 10 years. So it might grow in the next 10 years, but it will never be the majority um, because the majority of people will always take opinions and past experiences, brain pollution, uh, unreliable information. They will always take that as a starting point uh, because that is also how the human brain works. Very intriguing. That's not to mention the preconditionary coaches, Raymond. But um, look, I, I know you're a big. I know you're obviously a big reader, and you're very much into your evolutionary science. And this is something we discussed off camera. But um, Yohal Harari, um, he wrote a great book a few years ago called Homo Deus. And at the end, on the final page, he left three questions behind. One of which I'm going to ask yourself now, and it was we have to question ourselves, which do we hold in higher regard and value more? Is it intelligence or consciousness? Yeah. Well, um, like I said before, um, you can only answer that question if there is a clear definition of intelligence and a clear definition of consciousness. Intelligence, yeah, that is the, the most likely definition. Intelligence is the, the knowledge stored in your brain and the ability of your brain to connect dots, connect knowledge. And because this piece of information and this piece of information together can result in a new piece of information. Yeah, so, uh, so you, you do, do not only need uh, those pieces of information stored in your brain. You must also have the ability to, um, to connect those pieces of information. And that's also uh, what, what they test in IQ tests, uh, which are not the most reliable tests, but at least they try. Uh, it's not just retrieving information but it is using information uh, and, and to connect it. And consciousness, yes, um, are conscious thoughts yeah, provoked because information in your brain is activated. Well, this sounds very abstract, so let me use a metaphor yeah, because uh, I always like to explain things uh, as you probably have uh, seen in this in this conversation, uh, because there are a lot of people who just say things without substantiating. But uh, if you say something, you have to substantiate it in an objective way or at least as objective as possible. Okay. Just imagine that you walk in a museum. If I speak for myself, I don't have a lot of art references stored in my brain. So I am perceiving the same stimuli like the art expert next to me, but those stimuli are entering a bare art brain. So the stimuli enter my brain, but they do not provoke references. They do not provoke uh, pieces of information. 
So as a result, I do not have subsequent conscious thoughts, consciousness. And that is why when I walk in the museum, it often feels like I am sleepwalking. Yes, because it doesn't have a lot of meaning. So then I might think it's boring. Yeah, but the museum is not boring. My experience is not very conscious because the paintings and the art uh, statues and they are not triggering knowledge. So now there are no conscious thoughts being provoked. Okay. But when I am watching a football game and I have uh, significantly more football references than art references, when I watch football, then I have a lot of uh, stimuli, but now they provoke references stored in my brain, which activate subsequent conscious thoughts, you see? So a conscious thought is the consequence of information stored in your brain being activated. So there is a stimulus from outside. It activates a piece of information in my memory, and then a thought pops up. So with this metaphor, uh, with the museum and football, so a bare art brain, so hardly any consciousness. So I'm sleepwalking through the museum and I perceive that as boring, but in reality, it's just a lack of consciousness, a lack of meaning. With football, more references, so more consciousness. With this uh, metaphor, what I try to explain is that consciousness is the consequence of the amount of information stored in your brain. If I have little information stored in my brain, I will have little consciousness about something. If I have more information stored in my brain, I have more consciousness. So from that perspective, to go back to your question, consciousness would then be a consequence of whether I have a lot or little information about that context stored in my brain, you see? So then from that perspective, intelligence go, comes before consciousness. But like I said, um, if Joao would use uh, uh, different definitions, then you might end up with a, a different logical reasoning because the starting point of the logical reasoning is then different. Yeah. And um, yeah, and, and, and with this example, I think uh, that also touches on, uh, for example, the, uh, the, the tactical principle book that I did, uh, wrote um, and published last month. Um, I have used a lot of evolutionary knowledge uh, that, that you also read in, uh, in Yuval Harari's books. I have used a lot of evolutionary knowledge to explain methodology, to explain periodization, and to explain tactical principles. Because what you see in football is that um, tactical principles is like uh, a buzzword. Right? It's like the flavor of the month. Uh, so everybody is, is, is busy with tactical principles. 
But then when you read or listen to people talking or writing about technical principles, you wonder whether they have a deep understanding of technical principles. Often, the way somebody applies a technical principle says something about whether somebody understands what a technical principle actually is or what the, the, the function, the role of a technical principle is in football. Um, so in the, the technical principle book that, uh, that you are probably already familiar with, uh, the, I describe the, the methodology to implement tactical principles, to develop your team and to, uh, to develop uh, individual players. And the main message is that when players are playing football and there is no tactics, there are no uh, tactical principles, there are no team intentions, there are no individual intentions, you can basically compare that with somebody who is driving a car for the first time. So you are driving a car and then basically you are looking everywhere like Alice in Wonderland, you see? So all the stimuli are activating your brain equally. So you are not prioritizing stimuli, which is also uh, something that is proven in science. If people have to buy something, for example, strawberry jam, yes? If people uh, have to choose between 20 different strawberry jams, the chance that they buy something is very small. Why? Yeah, because all these gems are activating your brain. Yes, and there's hardly any gem that will trigger your brain above activation threshold, making your brain uh, doing something, eh? uh, buying one of the gems. So that's what people often call uh, 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 choice stress or uh, decision stress. Yeah, so the more you, the, the more there is to choose from, the more stress people have to choose something. But if you reduce the number of choices, so maybe there are only six gems to choose from, or maybe there are only three strawberry gems to choose from, the chance that somebody is going to choose something is significantly higher. It's the same in football. If a player is looking everywhere, the chance that the player makes a good decision is relatively small. But if there is, for example, a, a team intention based on a tactical principle, let's say um, exploiting space behind the backline of the opposing team, what you now create is more selective perception. Because now the right fullback with the ball will now only look and communicate with players related to the space behind the backline of the opposing team. So you create more selective perception as an integral part of more purposeful communicating. But now still there might be miscommunication. So if you now define not only a team intention, 
based on a tactical principle, but you also define individual intentions, you create even more selective perception. So now the player will only look at a few stimuli. So now a few stimuli are activating the brain a lot rather than many stimuli activating the brain a little. So uh, if we take the team intention, uh, exploiting space behind the backline of the opposing team, that means that the individual intention creating space behind the backline of the opposing team should be accomplished. Becoming a passing option behind the backline of the opposing team should be accomplished. And the individual intention playing to a teammate behind the backline of the opposing team should be accomplished. If one or more of those individual intentions are not accomplished, the team intention will not be accomplished. Eh? Exploiting space behind the backline of the opposing team. So no, no team intention, so no tactical principles. The players are looking everywhere. So a lot of things are activating the brain a little bit. With a team intention, a tactical principle, you narrow the stimuli down. So now fewer stimuli are activating your brain. So you create more selective perception and more purposeful communicating, but it might still not be enough. There might still be miscommunication. But then when there are individual intentions, so I'm the right fullback with the ball, yeah, then my individual intention is gonna be playing the ball to a teammate behind the back line of the opposing team. So now I create even more selective perception and even more purposeful communicating because now I'm not randomly looking in the space behind the back line of the opposing team, but now I'm gonna look for a teammate, for a teammate. So my perception is even more selective and my communicating is even more purposeful. So now the chance that I am focusing on the relevant stimuli in a game situation is even bigger. So my communicating is more purposeful. So the chance that I make the right decision increases significantly because of the, uh, the, the tactical principle, the team intention and the individual intentions and uh, the way they influence my brain. And this is basically um, the foundation of, uh, of my new book uh, about tactical principles. Um, and like I said, uh, and, and you, you mentioned that already, I used a lot of evolutionary principles and evolutionary knowledge to substantiate and uh, objectively explain the things that I've just mentioned. Raymond, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. It's been something I very much look forward to now for the past few months. But I mean, as we close, we always ask the guest one question before they leave. And for yourself, it's going to be no different. What advice would you have for coaches who are looking to build a career based on solid foundations? Um, yeah, that is basically uh, a summary of what I've explained uh, or tried to explain. Uh, in this conversation, um, try to develop, try to accumulate in your brain 
uh, information knowledge that is as objective as possible. Yeah, because sometimes 100% objectivity is not possible. Uh, and, and, and something that is true uh, might not be true tomorrow anymore uh, because of scientific breakthroughs or, or whatever. And, and that is not a bad thing. That is actually a good thing um, and because that is what you call evolution, progress. But uh, today you can only know what is knowable today. Uh, you cannot know today what is only knowable tomorrow. So try to uh, accumulate um, objective, reliable information in your brain and try to stay away from subjective, unreliable information. Um, and you can do that in two, two different ways. First, stay away from subjective, unreliable information um, in relation to your own experiences. And because every day you experience stuff, every day you have subjective first impressions. Don't, in, don't interpret those subjective first impressions as the truth, but always try to falsify your interpretations of situations. So try to be devil's advocate. Because then you stay away from uh, brain pollution in terms of your own experiences. The second thing is that the rest of your life, people will talk to you and people will try to convince you. And the number one thing that you should always do when you listen to somebody is somebody telling something to me or is, some, is somebody explaining something to me? And in the football world, you have a lot of people who are telling things. Oh, this is our model and this is how we apply it. Yeah. And you have very little people, very few people who substantiate things in an objective way. Uh, that is why uh, uh, conversations with me are always longer than uh, expected because I take a lot of time to explain things, either with metaphors or deductive thinking or whatever. So I have to introduce an objective reference first, which I'm going to use as a tool to go and answer your question. But that takes more time. So always check when somebody is talking to you informally or formally in coach education, for example. Always check, is somebody just sharing information with me? Like, oh, look at our model or at our club, we do it like this. Yeah. Why? You see? Or is somebody explaining things? And when somebody is explaining things, is this person then explaining it based on objective, logical arguments rather than on opinions after all? You see? So that is my first advice, that you, um, that you try to avoid brain pollution, subjective, unreliable brain pollution as much as possible. And secondly, 
ask yourself the question, what are the people, who are the people that are surrounding me? Just write down the three or the five people that are surrounding you most in the context of a football coaching. And because otherwise we are talking about personal development. Uh, so then your family is surrounding you more than your college at your club. But from a coach development point of view, who are the three or the five people that are around you most of the time? Yes. Because these three or five people will unconsciously influence your brain most. Similar to how parents influence their children. You see? The number one thing or the number one way that children learn from their parents is not by what the parents say, but how the parents behave. Yes? I mean, parents try to raise the children by telling them things or explaining things. But the behavior of the parent has a much bigger impact on the child. And then by the time the child is 18, then at some stage the child says, oh, hey, I sound like my mother, or hey, I start to act like my father, etc. You've probably been there yourself, like everybody else. But that is an unconscious process. Your parents have unconsciously, without you being aware of it, their, their behavior has sneaked into your system, in your brain. And that same mechanism takes place between you and the people who are around you most of the time in a football context. So after you have written down those names, yes, ask yourself the question, how would you describe the behavior of these people in terms of are they a role model? Do they practice what they preach? Or do they have double standards? Like uh, uh, the players always have to go 100% every day, but they, 80% is also good enough, you see? And their level of thinking. Are they subjective thinkers? Or are they objective thinkers? Because that also will have unconsciously an impact on your unconscious brain. So, yeah, in a nutshell, I would say that um, that these are, are are some of the some of the advices that I would give to uh, to coaches and in particular young coaches. Stay away from uh, brain pollution and surround yourself with people who are like you want to be. Yes, and. Um, and the reason why I'm saying that is that, and, and that is how we started also this conversation. As a player, I met Bert van Linge. As a student, I met uh, Jan Tambour, the philosopher. I worked with Louis van Gaal, with Gus Hiddink. Um, and they all have influenced my unconscious brain without me knowing it. But that is just pure luck, you see? So that is me playing street football. And then accidentally getting past the uh, lamppost in a beautiful, best possible way. But it is not because of me. That was just accidental, you see? Those four mentors have, has nothing to do with me. Uh, that is just luck. Um, 
But now, knowing this on hindsight, I can now transfer this knowledge to other coaches so they don't have to play street football anymore in their career, accidentally bumping into uh, mentors. But now, with this information, they can now hopefully top-down guide their own career more. Uh, in other words, getting past the lamppost uh, more purposefully, so quicker and better, by actively looking for the best possible mentors. Absolutely fascinating and insightful. Raymond, thanks so much for, again for coming on the podcast. Hopefully uh, we can catch up in 10 years' time for that part too. Yeah, that would be nice. Yeah.